A few hours ago, my wife and I were scheduled to come into our podcast studio for the North Star, and we were going to record some episodes of our new podcast together that we're calling Married to the Movement. And right before we came in to record those episodes, we got some great news about Rodney Reed being granted a stay of execution. So we decided instead to share that episode with you. It is, in essence, a preview episode of Married to the Movement to give you a sample of what it's going to be like. Hear us talking together about our lives, our marriage, uh, our lives as parents in relationship to this movement for civil and human rights. And so we're excited to give you just a sneak peek of what that's going to feel and sound like. And we are excited to hear your feedback. It's going to launch in full later this winter. We've already recorded several episodes that we can't wait for you to hear. Again, it's called Married to the Movement. And soon we'll be able to give you some information on how you can subscribe and listen and get all of those episodes. This is Sean King, and you are listening to The the, the Breakdown. The the, the Breakdown. The, 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 The Breakdown. This is Ray and Sean King from Married to the Movement. And we came into the studio tonight actually to start recording our third episode, which we had planned out and really planned to talk about um, specific times, which when it had been has been really difficult to be married to this movement and um, really talk about that and its impact in our lives, our children. But there's actually something else that's really top of mind right now that it feels more important to talk about. It's weighing heavily on us. It's it's on our minds. It's kind of hard to, to get out. And that's the, the case of Rodney Reed and just got some really big news about that tonight. And so it feels more appropriate to, to go ahead and talk about actually how we're feeling around that and, and all that's swirling. Yeah, and in some ways, as we prepare to talk about the low moments, I mean, mm-hmm. and we, you and I, over the past couple of days, as we prepare for each episode, we, we're trying to talk about um, in advance, like what we're going to record. And we just started going over some of the hard moments and low moments. And, and we wanted to share some of those challenges, but tonight is something that's kind of the exact opposite of that. Yeah. Where just a few minutes ago, we got the news that Rodney Reed, and for those of you who don't know the case, there's a man on death row in Texas who I believe was wrongly arrested and wrongly charged, wrongly convicted, sent to death row, has been there for nearly 23 years for a crime that we believe in the Innocence Project and many experts around the world believe that he didn't commit. And so just a few moments ago, we first learned that the Texas Board of Pardons and Paroles first made a big recommendation to the governor that he should stay the execution. And even though that wasn't binding, uh, it is traditional for that board when they make their recommendation for the governor to approve it. But then just maybe 30 minutes after the Board of Pardons and Paroles made that recommendation, we learned that uh, the Texas criminal court system granted Rodney Reed an appeal, which is a which is a huge deal, which could lead to a new trial. But at the very least, I have questions. What yep. does that mean about um, how long? So like when the Board of Paroles did it, it was a 120 day stay. Right. And so now that it's a different body, how long does that give that's the a great, team? That's a great question. And 
really the governor and the governor actually only has the power to grant a 30 day mm. stay. Okay. And it is it's a but it comes out as 120 days. And here's how. So you can't execute someone until 90 days after a stay. And so the governor can only do 30 days, but technically it ends up being 120 days mm. because there is a mandatory 90-day delay after, after a stay is issued. Oh. So the governor has the power to issue 30 days, and then you basically just tack 90 days on top of that. And, and so the governor didn't actually approve it, uh, which I think in some ways— is a bit of a loss for the governor. I, I We thought, obviously, he is a conservative Republican governor, but I thought it was a political moment or political opportunity for him to say, no, I am granting the stay or I am approving what the Board of Pardons and Paroles did. governor has been so quiet and, and has said just nothing, and I'm so baffled by that, like— I, I don't understand. Is this normal? Like, they are they, they just yes let the no. process play itself out or what? Because it's just so weird to me to yes hear nothing. No. Well, the governor talks a lot. He's a talker. It's not that he's a quiet governor. And even over these past few weeks, as we've been organizing and fighting hard to, to save Rodney Reed's life, the governor has had a whole lot to say about a whole lot of things. He is an attorney. And in fact, Governor Greg Abbott used to be the attorney general of mm. Texas. And I think he does have the ability to go dead silent on legal matters. I think that's his training. That's mm. his background. Mm. And uh, he could and we wanted to get some clue on where he was standing. But right, because we were talking about a uh, an execution that was coming up in next Wednesday, right? Yeah, just a few days away. And but not just that, it was that 3 million people signed a petition. Mhm. Um, you know, Republican Congress people came out in support of a stay. Senator Ted Cruz came out in support of the stay and the yeah, governor. Yeah, which is wild. Right, but the governor still stayed stone silent. And and so while all of that's going on, I think a cool part that I wanted us to talk about with this is, is how differently we've done this case in relation to our family life, yeah. our personal life, our kids. So much of the work that I do in the movement is often dealing with horrible cases of police violence uh, that, are, that are not just violent but painful and, and traumatic, and we kind of try to protect our kids from some of the information. Yeah, because they're they're little. Like, you know, we have the two big girls who are 20 and 17 years old, but then we have a whole second set, you know, who are 7 and 10 and, you know, now 13. And so the information that you share with the older ones is very different than what you share with right. the little ones. And right. plus, I've always, as a mom, as it relates to police brutality, I've always been, found myself in this weird, you know, kind of middle position of really, you know, wanting my kids to be informed and wanting to prepare them for what they will face in the world, but also wanting to protect them from that um, as well so that they don't walk around like, 
I talk about this all the time, especially as an educator, what a huge responsibility it is when we teach kids about these topics, particularly young children. Because when you teach about slavery, when you teach about the civil rights movement, for, for young kids especially, it is the first time that they are taking in this information. It is the first time, talking about children of color, Um, It is the first time where they're getting this idea that they are less than in somebody else's Mm. eyes. Mm. Like most educators, most parents of young children understand how egocentric young children are. And they think everything they do is great. That's why they ask you to watch them do the the cartwheel a million times. And they show you every picture. They think they can play. They think think they're going to be the next best everything. Right, right, right. right. And, And so they have this really high belief and value of themselves. And so when I, as a first grade teacher, as a second and third grade teacher, brought to them hard history about the civil Mm. rights movement, about slavery, I recognized that this may be the first time that they ever considered that someone, some group of people out Mm. there thought less of them simply because of the color of their skin. And and I know that as soon as I introduce that idea, they're going to carry the weight of that with them for the rest of their lives. Right. And so it is no small thing. And I, and I don't think that we talk enough um, in this country about how we do that responsibly as educators. And so when it comes to our children and the work that you do and the heaviness of it, I, I, I find myself struggling to make sure they're informed, make sure that these when these are a topic of conversation at our table, it, it and understand that it's going to be a natural part. What family doesn't talk about the work their parents do? But also, how do I protect them and so that they don't walk around with this complex, with this heaviness? I don't have the answer to that. You know, I don't know that we've done it well or not done it well. I'm not sure. I just know it, it's painful. Well, I think one of the ways we have tried to do it well, and, and I've shared this, got it just from you, Oh, you know, you and I, we, we've talked about this on previous episodes, but you and I have been together since we were kids. And so I've seen how you teach these things as an, as an educator, but how you teach these things to our our own kids. I've seen these things evolve. And, and one of the things that I've repeated to people who ask me, Sean, how do you share about the work that you do? Or how do you share about the movement? Or how do you share about the ugliness of the world with your kids? And one of the points that I've always made is something I saw you do as an elementary school teacher is repeat to people how it's essential that black history or any cultured history not begin with the low moment. Absolutely. And so black history can't begin with slavery because black people didn't begin with slavery. One hundred percent. We did not. And we've had to have conversations with our kids, teachers and all of that, because when you talk about American history, it is so tempting to to talk about it from starting at the colonial period and what that meant for Africans and black people in this country during that time. And 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 the the tendency is to tell that story from a place of pain. Right. But I always say you can't teach me about my pain until you've shown me my power, because it is that power. It is that rich history of of West Africa and and the long history of of the kingdoms that existed there um, that is going to strengthen me to hear about and digest the pain. Sure. I mean, I mean, and not and not just the kingdoms of West Africa, but sub-Saharan Africa of of Egypt and Kush and and Kemet. And 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 so if there's 6,000 years of black history and you have these 
painful 400 years that include the transatlantic slave trade and everything else. It's like, hey, how did you choose to isolate my history to 5% of black existence? And then you're sitting in a classroom as a student of color, as a black student in particular. And I don't think that we we pay, we talk enough about the angst that can occur, mm. especially if you're one of a few or sometimes even the only one in a class. It's often the case. Right. And then you, your teacher is having this discussion and all eyes are on you and people are just, you know, feeling uncomfortable. And then you're feeling uncomfortable and you're walking around carrying the hurt and even the shame of it because it has not been set up to say this is who you are. This is who you were before any of this ever happened. So you have things to be proud of and carry that pride with you as we talk about this painful moment. Right, so that's right. what we've tried to do um, in our household and how we've tried to um, really coach the teachers of our children to to take that same approach. And, and, even, and even when we talk about the worst periods of our history, we, we also talk about it to our kids and educate uh, other people's kids about how we fought back against those worst moments. That's another story. That's another very important part of the story. We talk about self-liberation, right? And so there's not this white savior um, that that came along in the form of an Abraham Lincoln or anyone else, really. You know, they were allies in a struggle that had been taking place since since the first African stepped foot on here. was never a condition that we fully Yeah, no, Africans were fighting back on the continent, on the ships before they landed. Right. And, and and so to talk about oppression and pain and bigotry and white supremacy, to talk about it in isolation from people fighting back, is it, just not how anybody should do it. Right. And I think that's what I, you know, what I appreciate about what our kids get to see, right? And so they hear these stories. They hear about Tamir Rice. They hear about Michael Brown. They hear about Rodney Reed. But they also get to see their father and other activists and people online who are actively resisting this, right? So at least there's that balance. And, and, And with this case with Rodney Reed, we did something different. And you'd have to tell me why we chose to do this one differently. Like a lot of the, like, so for instance, just a few weeks ago, me and my best friend, a civil rights attorney, Lee Merritt, were fighting back justice for the sister who was shot and killed by police, the Tatiana Jefferson. Yeah. We didn't talk to the kids about a Tatiana Jefferson. Right. We, we didn't we didn't take the kids to a rally for a Tatiana Jefferson. Right. Why did we do it differently this time? Because we our family traveled together. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. It, it definitely wasn't a conscious decision. Mm. You know, like it wasn't like I'm going to this. I'm going to get really involved in this one and not really involved in this one. I think that there are are, you know, times and moments where certain things kind of come together, you know, in a particular way. I think that um, something about this case and something about, you know, the idea that, you know, a, a Tatiana Jefferson, um, is, it was it's so incredibly painful. But by the time we found out about that story, she was gone already. There was nothing that mm. we could do to prevent her death. All we could do was mourn it, lament it, and demand justice for it. I think with the Rodney Reed case, and maybe this is some of why it has caught um, the attention of America mm. in the way that it has, America and the world, is because it feels like, hey, 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 
there is something we can do about this. Like the trigger hasn't been pulled. You know, the the thing that would end his life, it hasn't happened yet. And so it is kind of galvanized people. So like there is something we can do to prevent this act of yeah. brutality. Yeah. Whereas before, by the time we heard the stories, it was all, it had already, already happened. Already done. Exactly. Right. And so maybe that's, that's an explanation for it. But also, you know, you've been working on um, this story. Um, so, you know, I've stopped my whole life. To 100%. Do this. And, and, you know, I, I, I talk about this in some painful ways in my book where I, I talk about, I kind of have an, an obsessive personality and yeah. how there are times in my life where I stop everything, good, bad, and ugly. I, I even almost stop parenting in, in some ways to throw my whole life into a case. And this is one of those times. Which I where, don't recommend. No, and I'm not I'm not even saying it's okay. I'm saying that my personality is such that when I become obsessed and fixated on fighting for a particular case, it can take over my whole life. And and we did something differently this time. Instead of it just taking over my life, we decided to include the whole family in the process. Yeah, when we um, found out that the rally was happening in Texas, it just felt really important to me um, mm. to be there. I was surprised. I was surprised by it because yeah. I was going to go yeah. and I needed to go. And that's how it normally happens. You normally get on a plane and you go somewhere and and, and you do whatever needs to be done, and then you come back. And me and the kids are here, you know, going oh, about our lives. I I have. I have had these trips, you know, I, I, I say it all the time, but I mean, I've traveled now from mo- almost all of these alone to mm-hmm. 45 different states, mm-hmm. almost all of them fighting for justice or making some type of appeal. And this was the first time that I think the family traveled out of state with me just for a case. Maybe, yeah, probably, actually. Like, we've traveled with you lots if you just had a speaking engagement. Oh, sure. Or um, or something like that. And, and I can't really explain it. I don't know why, but it did feel really important to me to be there. And I really wanted the kids to to as we as we're in, you know, election mode and, you know, we're talking about democracy and what it means mm. to to live in a country where, you know, you you they hear about the Hong Kong protests. And then our daughter, the 17 year old Kendi, she's been really fascinated by the by the protests in Hong Kong and listening to podcasts and reading articles right. and making all these connections in class. And so I see my kids actively learning about what it means to live in a democracy, what it means to fight for what you believe and what in. It, and what it means to live in this day and age. Yeah. Like, you know, they are growing up in a time where literally and figuratively the world is on fire. Yeah. And they see it and feel it. But even for me, it was a profound moment for me to go to the Rodney Reed rally in Austin at the governor's mansion. Mm-hmm. And there was an enormous crowd there, and it was one. It was a it was a beautiful day. Uh, actually, it was it was a beautiful day. Literally, it was sunny and warm. Very hot. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> coming you from know, I realized something. Like I was dressed in all black, and I'm like, I've been in New York too long. <laughs> at the point in which I'm dressed in all black for right. no good reason. Like that's what people in New York do. Right, but it was eighty. It was eighty plus degrees, sunny in Austin, Texas. There were two emotions that I felt at that event. There was the 
the cloud above us of the reality that a man is on death row that mm-hmm. we believe's not guilty. Mm-hmm. But then there was this beautiful energy and camaraderie yeah. and pride among not just our family, but everybody there. Yeah, like it was tangible. Like you could you could really feel it. I, I remember when we when we got there, one of the reasons that I don't travel a lot with the kids, one, it's a lot of kids. Right. Um and and I don't always a lot of us. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and I don't always know. I like I just want to be sure that I can keep everybody safe, keep everybody together, especially this time because it was really the first time maybe that we were traveling without either of our big girls right. and we only had the three little kids and you know I'm used to having help and so right. um that and, was and we don't and we and we try and, and not to be um morbid but when there's an event where there's a safety risk like that. Yeah. We try not to be together in some kind of way. Right, and so. not to have the kids all out in public. You know, right. kids like to wander. They like to walk around. And even though we work really hard not to have pictures of the kids that, especially of the kids who um, are not always with us, you know, like the younger ones, they're they're with us. They're either with us or they're at school. They're always with somebody who's trusted. And, and so we try not to put their pictures the pictures of the ones who aren't like that out there. And so that also means like not really traveling with them so much because people take pictures of them and of us all the time. Right. Um, And so there's just like a lot of different considerations that go into why we don't often take the kids um, into these big public spaces and especially something like a rally for someone um, that we believe should be exonerated and other people feel differently about. You just never know. You never know the right. physical threat, the threats of violence that could be there. But this event was a beautiful thing. It, it was the, the the energy was special and people were so warm and so kind to us. And to I was the kids. just so impressed looking at the people who were gathered. The local and it was organizers. obvious to me that there are people who have made yep. it their business to show up mm-hmm. when these kinds of things are happening. And I was just moved by that because we have 3 million people who have signed a petition, right? I signed the petition. Signing a petition is not hard. You know, it takes it just, 30 seconds. It, yeah, right. it is. And, and for a, a number of people, that's the extent of it. I'm always moved, like when you post on your Instagram stories, the videos of people who are making the calls, like those are the people who are making a difference. Who say, yeah, I'm not just going. I'm not just going to click on the petition. Yeah, I'm going to do the awkward thing of calling strangers. One hundred percent. Hey, I think you should do this. And so, twenty five thousand nine hundred and eighty four people called the board of pardons and paroles. That's and, amazing. And you you have to think and they, that and that they, mattered. And, and and here today they made the decision. I right. mean, they were the first one like in some ways we felt like this was um a game of chicken in some ways of who was going to move first. Mm. And the board of pardons and paroles I thought did a courageous thing to say we'll move first. Yeah. And they issued their, you know, their recommendation. Again, this is a conservative board, but it's always, uh, I called the Board of Pardons and Paroles myself, and mm-hmm. if you call the number, it's me that talks people through what to say. Uh, it's women that answer the phone there, and they've been very kind and very warm, mm-hmm. and we've gotten great feedback from people who've called to say, I felt like they were actually listening, that they were actually taking notes. Mm. And when you think over the course of five days, 
an office getting 25,000 phone calls. Yeah. This is basically all they've been able to even, you know, see and think. I love something that Lee Merritt said that has just resonated with me. Something that he was saying in his speech at the rally. And Mm. basically that our government is set up when it's working properly to bend to the will of the people. And it is us who give our consent, either by what we do do, where we do show up, or where we don't show up. Mm. Um, we, It is us who give our consent to say what can and cannot happen in our name. And he just kept saying this refrain over and over again, we do not consent. Yeah. And so when people sign that petition, when people make those phone calls, when people show up to the rally, you are telling our government that we do not consent. First of all, I don't consent to to execution just period. And that is a that is actually a change for me. You know, mm. 10 years ago, 15 years ago when I was in my early 20s, back when you were a conservative. Oh, oh don't go there with me. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. You've no, never been a conservative. No, I, but but you but you weren't you weren't pro death penalty. No, but you not. also weren't necessarily against it. I wasn't. You know? I felt like, okay, you know what? There are some people who need to die. You know, like <laughs> some of the things that they do, you know, are so I egregious. A, I think that's a genuine human emotion. Like, let me say this as somebody who's against the death penalty. That when something horrible happens to your child, to mm-hmm. your spouse, to your mother or father, and something egregious or horrible happens, it is a normal human emotion to want revenge or retribution or balance in the universe. Yeah. My beef, my pushback to the death penalty is that we live in a system where it's not applied fairly. Yeah. It's not applied equally across race, across class, uh, across ethnicity. Like you can literally pinpoint zip codes that are most likely to have the death penalty applied to them. And the blacker the zip code and the poorer the zip code, the more likely it is that they'll have the death penalty. Right. So practically speaking, our our country is not set up to make sure that with 100 percent certainty that when we're putting someone to death, that we are putting them to death for the crime that they commit. So that's one a crime that they committed. That's one part of it. But then for me, the moral side of it, as I have grown and changed and developed over these last 10 to 15 years or so. It's just that I don't think that it should ever be within our power to decide who lives or who dies. And I've had to really grapple with, like you said, like if it was my child, you know, I'd want to kill somebody my own self with my own hands. I don't believe in state-sanctioned executions. Like we should be beyond that as a means of punishment, even for the worst crimes. Right, and that's why literally almost every developed country in the world has said, no, we don't do that anymore. Yeah, exactly. And there, there are, and, and most people who say that prison is not a harsh enough penalty has never have never been to prison before. Yeah. And prison is a harsh, painful, desolate place. And there are probably some people who... who for any number of reasons, should not be trusted to be a part of society again, right? Like, that's a conversation um, to be had as well. I think that's rare, much rarer than than we, you know, right. administer that punishment in this country, for because sure. Right now, because right now, the United States prison population is the oldest it's ever been. What do you mean by that? Well, Because the war, the so-called war on drugs that started in the 70s, 80s and 90s, -hmm. and because we're now in the, you know, almost at 2020, 
people who were convicted for nonviolent drug offenses or, or any crime in the 70s or 80s, we now have an, a, a deeply aging prison population. Mm. So the average age of America's prisoner is the highest it's ever been. And last year, we had the highest number of age-related deaths in America's jails and prisons wow. ever. Oh, my gosh. Of people who, who are just dying in prison. Many who, who did not have a life sentence. Mm. If, you get tw- if you get 20 years or 30 years, for many people, that's a death penalty. Mm. And there is, a, there is a new discussion going on to say we are giving what some people call the slow death penalty to so many people who are getting extreme sentences for a variety of crimes. And most Americans don't understand that throughout most developed countries, you don't even get life in prison for murder. Oh, really? It is a life in prison is a distinctly American practice. Mm. And it basically suggests there is no rehabilitation. There is no there is there. There is no hope for that person. But not just that. I mean, people who are given 20, 30 or 40 years, I'm working with multiple people who are incarcerated now who are given 25 to 30 years in prison. But if you're given that when you're 40, yeah, uh, all of a sudden you now have senior citizens. Well, and then not not even to talk about the health effects of of being in prison and your access to to health care and medication. I know oh, it, it story now you. of yeah. someone who was in jail, not even prison, but jail awaiting, you know, that lengthy process of of bail and hearings mm. and, and charges and all that stuff who didn't have access to the medicine that they needed for weeks. Yeah, you know, it's with- a, it, it, it ages you. And that's an understatement. It, it, it is a deeply unhealthy place in this country. And so. You know, there was a there was a time where you felt one way about the death penalty and, and differently on this, uh, you know, today. Right. Of course, I'm 38 years old now. And, um, you know, just as I understand, come to understand how justice is so unequally applied, there is no way that I could support the death penalty as it is now. But I don't think it's something that I could ever support. And you were also very moved and motivated by Brian Stevenson. Oh, yes. And Just Mercy. That's right. Yes. Uh, I read that book last year. I think it was. It could have been earlier this he year. He was my hero as well. Oh, my gosh. I was yeah. so moved by by that book and just the light that he, the human element that he brought. Like, it's one thing. These things are stories and they catch headlines. And But when you look at the human toll of of you know, our justice system and and then the history of it and how this is not new. And it's really just slavery by a new name. It really is. And so, yeah, that really changed me and and really moved me. And so when when it came to this Rodney Reed case, I made my own personal commitment to not just live it through you, which I think happens a lot. Um, and, and, And I'm not I don't even know that that's completely bad because in our house, somebody has to be, you know, concerned about the kids growing out of their pants and needing new shoes. And right. is the form signed? And what do you want sure. for, you know, dinner? Which is dif- which is, by the way, because I am often the only one in the house traveling and you've done some traveling over this past year for your job. You have a new job that that requires that from time to time. But for the past Five years, I have lived on the road for, you know, uh, several days a week sometimes. Mm -hmm. 
And that puts an enormous burden on you and on the kids. Right. So right. we can't both be, you know, full time activists and, um, you know, fully immersed in these cases. And so I think that some of the dynamic that has been set up because of that is just that, you know, you do this work and I support you in this work by making sure that our mm. family and our kids right. and everything are held down. But I, there was something about this case that um, caused me to get involved in a little bit of a different way. And I put the kids on the plane and we all went as a family and we, we wore the T-shirts. We stood in the hot sun. It was, it was, I mean, it was it was a cost. I oh, mean, it was, yeah, it was definitely a it cost. Was a, it was a, a financial expense to do it, and that, which is also what makes it prohibitive sometimes. Right, it's when like, you have so many people that you need to travel with. And another thing people don't understand about big families, like, you have to pay for special seats and extra seats, especially when you're traveling with young kids, to keep everybody together, right? Yeah. So it is, it's expensive to travel um, as an entire family, which is why we don't do it often. But there was one image in particular that I can't get out of my mm. mind as it relates to this rally, and that is when we were sitting in the car, and we do travel with security, and we were sitting in the car with security, and you were getting out as you and Lee were preparing for the um, for the press conference. And I was looking at a man. I watched him pull up in the parking lot and park his car. And then he started taking these things, these big rolls yeah. of things out of his car <laughs> and setting them on the roof of the car. And I, was, I wasn't quite sure what it was. Next thing I know, he pulls out these poles and all these big rolls that he had set on the roof, those were rolled up flags. And I don't remember what the flag said. I wish I did. They were black and white. I bet I can find them in a picture or something yeah. that someone posted. But he started one by one loading the flags onto these poles. And I just he thought— had dozens of them. Yeah, I mean, like, so many of them. And I thought, oh, my gosh, like, this is a person. This is a man who made a conscious decision that this was how he was going to spend his Saturday afternoon. And he wasn't just going to come and, and stand around, which would have been fine. Great. Heck, that's what— we did, me and the kids, but he was going to show his support in ways that were visible, in ways that helped add to the um, the spirit of yeah, the event. Yeah, the atmosphere. The, the, you said yeah. Lee looked out and said something to yeah, you about we them. Were, we were, when the, when, the, when the moment started and the rally began, um, Rodney Reed's brother, Roderick, introduced me and, and I spoke and then Lee spoke and then Lee and I, and... Lee is like a brother to me, and and, uh, and and so we looked out there and uh, saw it, and he said, man, isn't that beautiful? And look at the, look at all the flags. Yeah, and, and it was beautiful. Like, there were people all throughout, and I don't know if those people, like, I don't know if this was an organization, if it was planned that way, but right. to see people standing all throughout the crowd holding these flags, and um, kids were there um, holding signs that they had made, and it just— Little kids. Yeah, little, little kids. Little kids with—, with, with, t with T-shirts they had had made, posters that they drew themselves. Teenagers that right. had come with, groups that they were a part of. There was a young man who flew in, a teenage, a high school student, mm. who said he listened to the breakdown and flew in from Atlanta that his parents gave him permission to be there. That is wild. And I was so moved by it. Yeah. And people who said they drove, this was in Austin, People who drove from out of state, drove all day, drove overnight mm -hmm. to be there. And and because of that, and because of those flags, like the man who planted those flags, he never spoke. 
He, 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 he didn't have a speaking role on the program. Yeah, we don't even know who he was. Yeah, everybody there played their part. Yeah, 100%. The, mm. There was a lady next to me who kept shouting out stuff, you know, kind of at inappropriate times, but, like, <laughs> she was passionate, you know, and she meant that thing. And I was no, I just— love that stuff. I was so incredibly moved to see that these were people who were stepping in the gap, basically, and treating Rodney Reed's life— like it mattered to them mm-hmm. in a way that they would if it were their own family member. What impact do you think the kids being there had on them? Our children? Yeah, our children. You know, I think that it was so interesting because, you know, we have Vanny, and Vanny is our just powerful, <laughs> um, all-in child, and it doesn't matter if it's a WWE event where she's screaming, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> right, right. You know, with Daniel Bryan or screaming at Sheamus, you know, <laughs> or if we're at a basketball game, which right. she doesn't really know anything about, but if she's in the building, oh, she's, she's going to be as hype as ever. number one fan, right? Number one fan. And so to see her there, you know, every time you shouted, free Rodney Reed, she's like, free Rodney Reed, right. you know, and Lee saying, we do not consent. She's like, we do not consent, you know. And she was listening too because later when we were talking about Lee's speech and my speech like she understood. Yeah, she, knew what she it was totally about. did. So there was that and then there was our six year old um, who was just hot and tired and was just <laughs> right. like what 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 is going on and you said that she actually asked so at the time at the at the rally you're like oh poor baby she has no idea what's going yeah. on here but then you said she asked you something in the car just a couple days yeah, ago. Yeah we were in the car and um our son and and Savannah, they understand what Rodney Reed is up against. Mm-hmm. And they understand even what it is that I've been trying to do. And we were talking about it. And uh, Savannah every day will ask me, uh, Dad, how many more days? Mm. And, she, and she was just concerned because when we first started doing this, I was posting it was 15 days, mm-hmm. then 10 days. Mm-hmm. And I told her yesterday, you know, this baby's five days. Mm-hmm. And I said there was five days left until the execution. Mm-hmm. And uh, our youngest daughter, who's seven, said, Daddy, what's an execution? Wow. And, that is just, um, that is so heavy. Like, what, I, I did not give a smart answer. Mm-hmm. It what wasn't, did you say? It wasn't Sesame Street. (laughs) You know, I told her that in the American system that we have laws and that when uh, courts determine that somebody broke a law, that sometimes they kill that person. I mean, when you explain it like that, like this is what I've said as a teacher to young children. I've always said, like, can you explain it to a seven-year-old, mm. like as in as plain language as you possibly can? Pretend like you're talking to yeah. a seven-year-old and break that idea down. But we have rules, and sometimes there are rules you break that when you break them, they kill you. How absurd does that sound to right. a seven-year-old child? Like, wait felt, a minute, I felt, what? I felt profane saying it. Of course. Like, hearing you explain it like that. I see it in a, a complete different light, like because yeah. we're, we're constantly talking to children about mistakes and and you know doing things that are wrong and what's right. And for a child to to conceptualize this idea that you could ever make a mistake so big that that people decide you deserve to die for it, that's that has to be a, a, a scary and difficult thought. We probably need to follow up with her about that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean. Uh... 
even even Ezekiel and Savannah both tried to explain like we all knew that she had just asked us a question that was very difficult to give a sincere answer to yeah. and and I think I think that reveals the grossness of it yeah that now here's the thing it's not that everything can be explained to a 7 year old I, I so I'm not saying that that's proof we should not have right. the death penalty but I am saying that we have a part of our our so-called legal system that really can't appropriately be explained to a child just shows the the sheer magnitude and gravity of the moment. Yeah. You know, know, I've been talking with our 17-year-old about it, and as she's been, you know, really learning and understanding the case and um, she's had, like a little private investigator with me. Like we, you yeah. know, she digs, she digs in as well. Yeah, know? but you know, she and I were both saying, "Gosh, I don't know how do you handle it to fight for something so hard." If 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 Rodney Reed were to be executed, we were just both saying just how emotionally devastating mm. it would feel, it and would. we're not his family. And we've only known about this case for a few weeks now. And and so I can't imagine just how painful it is. And that's Mm. part of what moved me about Just Mercy by Bryant Stevenson is all the people that he had walked with through these types of cases that were executed. Anyhow, how do you keep going beyond that? Mm. You know, like when you fully believe that someone is innocent um, if that's the if if that's the side that you're on, like don't execute this person because they're innocent, and to see them get executed anyway, like yeah. I don't, I've never experienced anything like this before, mm. and so it's caused me and caused our daughter Kendi to really like we were just having a conversation, like what will we do? You know, how do you mourn? How do yeah. you move on? How do you keep fighting? Well, I've known, I mean, uh, just this past week in Georgia, where we lived for nearly 15 years, where mm-hmm. half the kids were born there, the state of Georgia. Now, half of America states no longer have executions. Oh, I don't think yeah. I understand. So that. many, many states have already banded themselves, but it's particularly southern states, uh, which there's a reason why they are. They I mean, still have them. Come on, like it's so not hard to connect the dots right. there. So. Literally, the states that tended to be the primary slave-holding, slave-trading states, mm. uh, the primary states of, of lynching are the ones that still have executions. Mm. And so um, the state of Georgia, just on this past Tuesday night, executed a brother named Ray Cromartie. I saw that. And many local activists had been fighting for Ray for years. Mm-hmm. And his case, I, I wish I had known more about it sooner and I felt a level of guilt and shame even right. that I didn't. Same, same thing. When I saw Lee post about it and Lee, you know, expressed some really strong emotions behind it. Um and I just thought, good Lord, like what are we doing? There were we are ending people's lives. There were sincere people, including in the victim's family, in in the case in, in the case of Ray Cromarty Someone was killed and he was convicted for that murder. And the victim's family, multiple members of the victim's family, did not believe he was the one who did it. And, you know, that's when we talk about what justice means. I mean, I'm confused, I guess, because doesn't there if there's any reasonable doubt whatsoever, 
it doesn't isn't that supposed to result in like a first of all non-conviction but how can there be reasonable doubt and it results in an execution right well here's the other the 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 main kicker is this nation doesn't execute rich people Ugh. and Come on. and not that i want them to execute rich <laughs> right, people right right no but the quality of your defense the single determining factor is your income. And so even to be black and rich is to often escape consequence in America's justice system. But to be white and rich is basically how you stay above the fray. It's how people like Jeffrey and if Epstein. That's and possible. That that's proof enough right there that there's something extremely right. wrong. And so in the case of Ray Cromartie and so many black men who are executed in this country, had they just had a competent defense, they often would not have been convicted. Mm-hmm. And and in Ray Cromartie's case, they n- literally never tested the murder weapon for DNA. And Ray Cromartie had said from the from the day the crime happened that it was not him. He had nothing to do with it. And the state of Georgia and the county where he was convicted refused to test the murder weapon for DNA. And privately, and I didn't talk about this publicly at the time, but privately, many of us on the Rodney Reed case were very discouraged by that because the state of Texas refuses to test the murder weapon in that case. I don't for understand DNA. that. Like, why wouldn't you? Why don't? Why wouldn't you turn over every leaf, look under every rock? Like, why wouldn't you? It's incomprehensible. Yeah, Here's I, don't, why. I don't get it. I do get it. I believe that the prosecutors in that case, in both cases, believe that if they tested the murder weapon, that it would either come back with nobody's DNA, mm-hmm. and or would come back with somebody else's DNA. But isn't and that like isn't that what you what no, you're looking for? I, I'll I'll say to you what I have said several times this week. I, I just did an interview uh, earlier this afternoon with I think the L.A. Times, mm-hmm. and I said to them that this American legal system was not created for justice. It wasn't created for for anything other than punishment. And it was created for punishment of very particular people. And I mean that literally not like not, it was, it was created really as an extension of slavery specifically. And so it, when you try to get it to be fair, to be equitable, to, to the system, we call the justice system and Listeners of the podcast will know that we're encouraging you to call it the criminal legal system Mm. or just the legal system and that it's not designed for exoneration. It's designed for punishment. So that's what it's going to do. And so when you all of a sudden have new facts, new evidence that would exonerate somebody, this system wasn't designed for that. It was designed for quick, fast punishment of very particular people. So where do we stand right now with the Rodney Reed case? Well, you know, we learned about this. We were in the car for several hours picking up and dropping off kids, which is a mm-hmm. huge part of our daily lives. Yeah. We are glorified Uber drivers as, parent, <laughs> as parents. And any parents uh, who are listening understand exactly what that means. That Yeah, you, but we're not getting paid. <laughs> right, so I don't right. know about Uber. Yeah, right. We are, we are bootleg Uber drivers. I don't know what you call it. But 
So in the little bit that I've been able to study the court ruling, uh, this afternoon, the Texas Board of Pardons and Paroles, which I've always, I've never seen the word paroles before. <laughs> before I've never seen it plural like that. But the Texas Board of Pardons and Paroles first made their recommendation to the governor. And I, I spoke soon thereafter with Bryce, the lead attorney for the Innocence Project on this case, who told me, that he was actively trying to lobby the governor to go ahead and approve that recommendation from the Board of Pardons and Paroles. Mm -hmm. But soon thereafter, the Texas Criminal Court of Appeals granted the the Rodney Reed family, granted Rodney Reed uh, an appeal. And I have tried to wrap my mind around what that means. But what it says in short in the appeal, which I I posted across social media, Mm It says that they granted the appeal for several reasons, including new evidence that they thought was vital to be considered that they seem to deem credible, Mm -hmm. uh, including statements from actual witnesses that they granted it in part because of a violation of Brady laws. And I had to call Lee to explain to me what Brady laws were. And he said, and this is very important right now in the state of New York, that when a prosecution is is underway, the prosecution is required by law to turn over all evidence to uh, to the defense. And a, a brand new law was just passed this past legislative session in New York, because in New York, the prosecution was not required to give that evidence over until 48 hours before trial. So you could literally be on trial on Wednesday and not get the evidence until Monday. Really? And all over the country, they have 90 days, 120 days, you know, like three months Mm -hmm. where people have to have time to sit with it and marinate on it and think about it. Well, the the criminal court of appeals seemed to suggest that they believe the prosecution had evidence that they never gave over Mm. to the defense. And you are not able to offer a competent defense right. in, 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 that, in that sense. And so if the prosecution has evidence that could exonerate a person, say, for instance, the, the prosecution's entire case hinged on Rodney Reed never knowing Stacey Stites. Mm. But if the prosecution had some evidence that, oh, he actually did know Stacey Stites, that multiple people suggested that they were aware of the relationship, well, that tears away the, f- the fundamental idea of their prosecution. And so we don't know how long the appeal process will take place. Uh, it how can- is this different? Do you know? And I, and I realize that a lot of this is new, so it's, it's fine if you don't know. But how is this different from other stays that he's been granted and, and other appeals? Yeah, I can speak on that. In, in 2015, Rodney was actually only about 10 days away from being executed. Oh. And his attorneys, including Bryce from the Innocence Project and others, Bryce has been on this case, he told me today, for 18 years. Oh, my gosh. And uh, we, we, had, we had a conversation this morning that was uh, uh, a moving conversation where I could sense the nervousness yeah. with, with Bryce, just the seriousness of the, of the issue. And, and so in their previous appeal... They said, hey, we believe we have some evidence that could exonerate Rodney. And that was all the way back in 2015. So that has, in essence, kept Rodney alive for four years during the appeals process. 
And so, like, have they presented that new evidence? They and did. It's just- they did. They did present the evidence during the initial appeals process in 2015 and 2016. Then executions often happen very slowly, and there are rules and policies in terms of how many how many uh, uh, filings you can make. Well, since they had their last appeal granted. They have nearly 20 new affidavits Mm. from witnesses who say they just now had the courage to come forward. And we can say that's a hell of a thing that you just now had the courage to come forward. But many of those witnesses are actually police officers, white police officers from Bastrop County and surrounding districts who either investigated the case or knew the man, Jimmy Fennell, who is the other suspect in this case. Uh, a white supremacist from the Aryan nation came forward and said, I was with Jimmy Fennell in prison. And he said that he confessed to the murder. Mm. That's that just came out four weeks ago. Mm. Each of these people swore to an affidavit to the penalty of perjury. They could go to jail if they were found to have made these stories up. And so and these have have just happened, you said, in like the since the last since the last appeal. And so this evidence has not has not been heard before court. Right. And other attorneys for the for the prosecution and others, they see that and they call BS on it. They want to argue that everybody is making all of this up. And here and here's what I'm saying. You may have one person who does this, but at the point in which multiple police officers, colleagues, police officers in particular, it's convincing to me. At the point of, at the point in which somebody from the the a, a white supremacist comes out to say that they heard something that would exonerate Rodney, to me that's a convincing piece of evidence. Yeah, when a white supremacist <laughs> is coming forward to potentially save the life of a black man. Yes, yeah, this is not a this is not a normal thing. And again, even that man who spent time in prison is putting himself at risk of going back to prison. So we don't know, or do we know, how long no, we, we have? We don't know. Uh, there's not. We're not now bound by a number of days. So had the governor signed uh, a stay of execution that was recommended to him by the, the Board of Pardons and Paroles, uh, Rodney would have technically had at least 120 days. But what the legal team would have done during those 120 days would be file appeals that they hoped would get approved. Mm-hmm. Well, the appeal has already been approved. Okay. And so what we hope to have accomplished in those 120 days, if they were granted, has already been accomplished. So it could technically, they could say the hearing begins next week. Uh, the hearing begins on Monday. So it could potentially be less than 120 days? No, no. Uh, well, well, it could you. It would always be at least ninety days. So at, at the point at which an execution is stayed, it's always ninety. Okay. My best guess is that it it will be a period of years at this point. Really. That the appeals process, it is a slow process of getting on court dockets, and that I mean I could be wrong, and it could be less, but my my sincere hope is that they would grant Rodney Reed's defense team the time to properly get everything in order. Is there a possibility of a new trial at this point? Yes, there there is a real possibility. Now, 
those are the two the two options is that the new judge who is assigned in this case will say uh, I have looked at all of this and we are granting a new trial or I have I have looked at all of this the other option which is kind of rare at this point the other option would be to say I have looked at all of this and don't deem it credible it's going to move forward. Right. And so I know you were you were talking to um, a reporter on the phone on our way over here, and I believe they were asking about the vigils happening on Sunday and whether or not those would still move forward. And I liked, you know, what you said about it, because I think my first answer would have probably been, you know, maybe not. But but you really stressed the need to continue to show up. Um, in support of Rodney Reed and this case moving in the right direction. Yeah, and you know, what I understand is this. We have organized ourselves into this moment. Yeah. that We we are here because of the work of the Innocence Project, because of the work of the action pack that I'm a part of. We have organized ourselves into this, and it's not the time to just say, oh, we're done, and let's move forward, let's, or let's, let's do nothing. Um, part of what this case has done, this petition is now the largest petition ever signed for someone on death row mm. in, in the history of the world. Yeah, I remember when when you were working on it um, with the action pack and, and you were, you know, kind of talking me through step by step some of the things that were going as the, the petition and the website and things were being built. I, I don't think that I know for sure that you and the rest of the team there had no expectation that it was going to get this level of support. Yeah, when it, when we had 100,000 people who signed on to it, we were proud because we felt like 100,000 people care about this. Yeah, I remember you showing me the 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 sheet as it loaded up with people, and you were like, look, you know. It was like 50,000. Right, we were like, we're like yeah, yeah, you know, we're going to get there. And, and I think, though, it, it gives us an opportunity to educate people on how all of this works. And what, I, what I've what i learned from these past few weeks working on this case around the clock full time is that... Yeah, how many episodes do you know that, that, that you've done on for the North Star on the breakdown? Maybe 15 episodes that I've done just wow. non, nonstop, day in and day out. Mm-hmm. What I've understood is that this is an opportunity for us to educate people on a process that is re- really shrouded in secrecy. Yeah. And that all lends itself to to injustice. Yeah, for sure. And we've kind of pulled the Being covers done off in of the this. dark. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Um, you know, I could go on and on about what I think needs to change in, in terms of our civics education and, and what we actually learn um, about how to make our democracy work and how it, how it is currently working and not working, to be right. frank, you right. know. Well, I know that you're not going to stop focusing on this case. And, you know, there's a there's a system and, and mm. steps that have to, to play out. And so, you know, just really hoping and praying and, and pushing for the best, you know. And I know there are so many people who have taken the action steps and will be looking for ways to to keep um, keep this case forefront and following more steps that, you know, may be needed in the days, weeks, or even years to come. Yeah, absolutely. And, and part of why we've done this is to begin building the systems and structures to not just impact Rodney Reed, but to, to help address 
systemic injustice. And Rodney Reed and his case, they are symptomatic of a bigger system and a bigger case. Absolutely. So we're going to continue fighting back, but... You know, it's uh, it's a day where we get to share some good news of a victory. Yeah. And, uh, and still just so inspired by all the people who have made it their business to make this um, their business. It's been really moving. Absolutely. Break it down. Break, 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 break.